A 12-year-old boy is removed from his class and lectured by administrators over a gas and flag patch on his backpack. If you have a kid in the industrial indoctrination complex, formerly known as a public school, get them out. At all costs, get them out and get them out now. I'm Tommy Laren and the show starts now. What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. Angie, your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer with over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros. Angie has experience and expertise to tackle any project with ease. Whether you're looking to spruce up your backyard or undergo a major home renovation, Angie's got your back. And their pros are locally based, often running small businesses right in your community. And here's the best part. Angie makes the process seamless. From researching and comparing pros to scheduling services at your convenience, Angie's user-friendly platform puts you in control. So why settle for anything less than perfection when it comes to your home? With Angie, you can trust every project will be completed with the utmost care and professionalism. So get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well. So I'm the proud product of the public school system, but schools these days and teachers these days, well, they aren't what they used to be. Educators have always tended to lean to the left. That was the case even my very conservative and very red home state of South Dakota but what we are experiencing in so-called education today ain't leaning to the left. It's full-blown activism, gay sex ed, and liberal lunacy passed off as education. And here's just another example out of Colorado Springs, Colorado. A 12-year-old boy plucked out of his classroom and sent to the office for what? For having a don't tread on me Gadsden flag patch on his backpack. Watch. Do they know what the Gadsden flag is? That it's a historical flag. So there, um, the reason that they do not want the flag, the reason we do not want the flag display, mm -hmm. is due to its origins with the um, slavery and slave trade. He's, what's going to happen if he doesn't take it off? He, I mean, he is able to go. I was actually just telling him, like, I was upset that he was missing so much school. Yeah. I'm like, ah, so. I asked if can he just take his stuff out of his bag and go back to class. <laughs> like I just want him to go back to class. The bag can't go back. It's got a patch on it because we can't have that in and around other kids. Yeah, it has nothing to do with slavery. That's like the Revolutionary War patch that was okay. displayed when they were fighting the British. Yeah, and I mean we teach him to always stick up for your beliefs. And I mean you're going over the revolution this for seventh grade. I mean the founding fathers stood up for what they believed in against unjust laws. This is unjust. Yes, these are the kind of morons educating your kids. These idiots pull the boy away from academic learning to reprimand him using lies as the basis of their BS. The Gazan flag does not represent slavery or the slave trade or racism, you imbeciles. 
The Gaston flag served as a warning to Britain not to violate the liberties of its American subjects. So riddle me how a flag designed to symbolize the fight for liberty is connected to the frickin' slave trade. You know who should be pulled out of the classroom? These Nimrod educators who don't know basic American history. The staff members claim this little boy's backpack patch was a disruption and might offend other children, but we all know that's a load of horse crap. But this kid is such a boss, he proved his point with this photo showing a staff member's decorated commie wagon in the parking lot. Oh, gotta love it. But we all know these liberal loser staff members wanted to punish the kid because that don't tread on me flag has become a rallying symbol for conservative Americans who want the government to leave us the hell alone. They were punishing a conservative kid. That's what this amounts to. It's important to note the Vanguard School is a charter school. So is this what we've come to? The point where homeschooling or classical Christian schools are the only option for parents who don't want to send their kids to these liberal commie camps? You know, it's a damn shame. But in a move I assume was brought on by wall-to-wall internet backlash, the Vanguard School has decided (laughs) to let the boy keep his patch. Wow, how generous. Joining me now with his reaction to that story and more viral moments of the week is cultural commentator and writer for Rebel News, Ian Miles Chung. So, Ian, that video of that little boy getting called to the office over his little don't tread on me Gadsden flag patch obviously lit up the Internet yesterday. I saw that you posted it. It was really a viral video. But I have to wonder if nobody captured that on camera. I wonder if that Vanguard school would have reversed course. I wonder if they hadn't been blasted on social media, if they would have continued to punish this poor kid. And how many other kids that have anything somewhat patriotic, any kind of patriotic paraphernalia on their person or items. I wonder how many kids in the United States today and around the world are being treated like this by our educators. It's really something, isn't it? It really is. And I think countless children right now are being treated this way. Uh, There's no cameras in the room in most of these cases, so we just don't know. We might hear about it on social media. Maybe a parent complains about it. Maybe the kid takes to Discord or X, as Twitter is now called, to complain about it. But in general, I mean, a lot of this stuff just goes unheard. And I think we are fortunate that child is very fortunate that there was a camera in the room at that point and that they were able to make a case out of it. And now keep in mind, this case isn't over, right? All it takes is one complaint from one other parent or one other child in the room. And, you know, he's going to be facing suspension again, potentially. That's what's so wild to me is, you know, that's not... That shouldn't be a divisive symbol. I could even understand if it was a Confederate flag or something like that. But simply having that flag, I mean, that's rooted in American history. And it's also rooted in, in liberty. I mean, that's fighting for liberty for all Americans. So to me, it feels like not only are these educators obviously coming down on what has become a conservative symbol, but also they just don't know basic American history. And I'm a little concerned about the education system in America. It's become far more like indoctrination. I'm wondering what you're seeing from where you are outside of the U.S. Is this a global problem? It is a global problem. I mean, so that symbol, right now it's being used in Argentina to represent the libertarian and liberty movement over there. There's potentially a uh, presidential candidate who may win, and he uses that symbol. So, I mean, this symbol is global. Everybody knows it. Everybody recognize it, uh, recognizes it. It's not a symbol of hate. It is not a symbol of racism or anything they like to, to call it. But somehow, the 
concept of liberty has become synonymous with problematic because, you know, uh, it says here, don't tread on me. I mean, you'd think that anybody would be able to stand behind that statement. But no, they want to tread on you and they will. So what I'm seeing worldwide right now is this global effort to uh, to trample on the rights and freedoms of literally anybody. And, you know, it's heartening that, you know, this one child was able to ignite a conversation. And more than that, perhaps uh, more children right now. I saw some parents on uh, on social media uh, talking about how they're buying patches for their kids to wear to school. And it's like, OK, that's cool. You know, some people might say, you know, don't use your kid as a political prop. But I say, you know what? It stands for freedom. It's not about politics. It's about defending your right. To well, exist. And let's not forget, yeah. there are some people that are also triggered by the American flag who live in dot, dot, dot America. So nothing surprises yep. me anymore. But I'm going to tell you what is acceptable. Um, teaching all this gender ideology in schools. Now, this is an example out of Canada. I mean, Canada is far worse than the U.S., if you can believe it. But we've got this teacher who is <laughs> this Z-cup trans teacher. Uh, we have a photo of this lovely, uh, this lovely lady. But... Um, I know you've seen this person. Apparently, yes. this, this Z-Cup trans teacher got a new job, and there are some parents in Canada that are pretty fired up about it. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on him, her, they, them, and the fact that <laughs> that is acceptable in a classroom. I think that the schools are simply afraid of all the pronoun brigade havers, right? The people with pronouns in their bios, they are socially terrorists, essentially, right? They are, uh, they have special protections that enable them to essentially do whatever they want. And in more, you know, often in these cases, it's not like this person is confused about their gender, that they're exploring it. No, they simply want to exploit the system. This is what they're there for. It's the same reason why uh, 50% of men in, uh, uh, you know, well, transgender men in uh, in prisons in Wisconsin, for example, are convicted felons uh, who, you know, who are in there for sex assault charges, rape charges. I mean, there's a reason they want to be put in women's prisons by identifying as women so they can keep doing what they do. I mean, there's nothing honest about this. Uh, it, it's it's simply a way for them to uh, you know find some victim card to play that victim card and uh, receive special privileges from a society that is so weakened right now by liberalism by wokeism by this whole idea this whole notion that that tolerance is the highest virtue in, in my opinion and I think this should be the opinion of every uh, reasonable person truth is the highest virtue not tolerance tolerance is simply uh, the ability to tolerate uh, this evil that we now see in society and it's all across the world. Would somebody like this, like a Z-cup trans teacher that's walking around with these giant fake breasts and probably pushing some kind of gender ideology, would that be welcome in somewhere like Malaysia? I'm sure there's many no, places around the world where it not. wouldn't be. Tell me how the reaction would be from students and parents and educators if this were a thing where you were. I think it would be shocking. I mean, it's not like transgender people aren't here. They do exist, but they generally just keep to themselves. But the last time a transgender person tried to become an influencer, I believe it was on Instagram, there was a severe backlash. People were sending them threats. And now I don't endorse the threats, but, you know, uh, it, it wouldn't be welcome. Let's put it that way. The parents wouldn't want to have words with them more than words, perhaps, uh, teachers, the students would pick on them. It's just not normal. And I think it's about time the whole world sees this. I mean, it's like we are told to question what we see. It's like, what is two plus two? Well, it's four, but they're telling us it's five. They're telling us it's six. And that, you know, if we say four, then we're bigots. And I, I disagree with that. It's like some things, men and women are two completely separate 
uh, genders. I mean, there's no two ways about it. This idea that there's multiple genders besides man and woman, the idea that you can pretend to be somebody that you're not. I mean, it's delusional and we should stop feeding it. I agree. We have to stop coddling the madness because when you coddle it, you allow it to metastasize and you allow it to become the norm. And I think that something that you said was very interesting, that there are trans people around the world, right? I don't have an issue with it. Yes. Do what you want. But in other countries and other places, they live their lives. They keep to themselves. They aren't demanding spotlight here in the U.S. and in other exactly. places in Canada. Uh, they're demanding spotlight. And I, that's where I think that it really rubs people the wrong way, especially when you have people like a Dylan Mulvaney, who is trying mm -hmm. to impersonate a woman by mocking women. It doesn't sit well with us. But the next thing I want to turn to is somebody who actually has biology and, and part of their commandments for running for president, and that's Vivek Ramaswamy. Now, I saw that you posted, and I found this very interesting. I'm going to play the clip. But it turns out that Vivek was very concerned back in, I believe it was 2004, about Four, yes. uh, about Reverend Al Sharpton having the qualifications <laughs> to run <laughs> for, a, for a Democratic nominee position. Let's take a look at that clip, and then let's discuss question here. Go ahead. Reverend Sharpton, hello. I'm Vivek, and I want to ask you, uh, last week on the show we had Senator Kerry, and this week, and, and the week before, we had Senator Edwards, and my question for you is, of all the Democratic candidates out there, why should I vote for the one with the least political experience? Well, you shouldn't, because I have the most political experience. <laughs> so, first of all, I'd like to say right off the bat, I like his hair better like that. I think he should return yep. to that hairstyle. But beyond that, what's interesting is also on that college hardball MSNBC tour was one Pete Buttigieg. So I know that you posted it. How can this yep. possibly happen? I mean, something, something seems a little odd. What do you think of it? I mean, Elon Musk might say fate loves irony, but I don't know. I mean, it's worth asking, why were they there? And it's like, you have these luminaries, like Pete Booty Judge is a luminary, so is Vivek, and, and they were both there at this event at MSNBC. And, you know, there's a lot of people on my timeline who are saying, are they Democratic plants? I mean, I personally don't think so, but it's an interesting coincidence that this is the case, right, that they are both there. Uh, maybe fate does love irony. Who knows? That could literally just be the case. What is your take on Vivek? Because, uh, you know, for me, it's evolved over time. When he first started, you know, his campaign, I thought this is somebody that's very intelligent, obviously built businesses, he somebody is. that I love having in the Republican fold because I think that he speaks about important concepts and he speaks about them very eloquently. But as we've moved on, you know, he's been caught several times kind of flip-flopping on certain things, and he's been caught doing it by not only conservative hosts, but liberal hosts, by social media. The internet never forgets. So it does That's kind right. of come off to me like he's either trying to play to the hits, or maybe he doesn't have the ideological framework that we think he has. What's your take on him? Is he genuine? I don't think he's entirely genuine. I do believe he believes he's genuine, but there are often times when he says things that simply contradict a, you know, a statement that he made two months ago, two weeks ago, uh, in a book that he had written. For instance, he condemned President Trump in his book, and now he's pr singing his praises, which is very interesting. He's clearly trying to court the uh, uh, the audience, the MAGA audience, right, just in case uh, Trump is unable to run. I think that's what his game plan is. I mean, it's smart, but as you said, the internet doesn't forget. And with regards to some of his proposals, they just don't seem real realistic, right? Like he wants to turn Russia against China and for America to become best buddies with Russia. I mean, that seems fine, I guess. Uh, but 
if you're Russia, would you trust that? I mean, how can you make a promise like that? How can you make you know the effort to to say that I'm going to do X, Y, and Z when there's literally no way that this is even going to happen? It's like saying I'm going to ban all drugs. I'm going to uh, right. end crime. I'm going to end prostitution. It's not going to exist under my rule, but it is though. Like you can't stop these things. I mean, you can try to mitigate it. So the, the the kind of promises that he's making right now, they seem a bit hollow, right? It's like, oh yeah, that sounds good on paper, but how is it going to be done? And again, as you you know, as you mentioned, he doesn't have political experience. He doesn't have the uh, you know any like track record that I know of that uh, you know that delivers. Like for instance, with DeSantis, there's delivery there. With Trump, there is some delivery there. But with Vivek, you know, his own company, his pharmaceutical company, bought a drug and it was a failure and a lot of people lost their money. I, I don't know, you know, if he knew that drug was going to be a failure, but I mean, the track record doesn't look too good from where I'm sitting, you know? Yeah. And also, uh, as you were talking, what it reminded me of is, you know, when you're in the younger grades in school and you're running to be class president or something and you tell your fellow classmates that if you're elected to be class president, that you're going to get them Oreos every day for lunch and ice cream machines in the hallways. And it sounds really good, even though it's never going to happen. That is Vivek to me in a nutshell. Yes. Says some good things, but are they deliverable? I'm not sure. Last thing I want to exactly. ask you, because I'm really interested in your international perspective. What does the world think of Donald Trump's fourth indictment and now his mugshot because here in the u.s people are very divided people either yep. love or hate the mugshot either love or hate donald trump but when the world sees that mugshot from a former president of the united states of america what's their reaction i think they see a banana republic that's uh, weaponizing its political system its legal system to go after a former president that is simply uh, unfriendly to the existing administration that's what they see they see injustice whether or not he deserves that indictment i i don't think it really matters because the optics right now are, is that uh it's a banana republic i mean you might expect this from a uh you know a third world country someplace in africa perhaps or south america where they will randomly indict a former president and throw them in jail or threaten to throw them in jail so that they can't run you, we're seeing that in pakistan for example with imran khan where they are levying you know political persecutions or prosecution against the man preventing him from running for office so we're seeing the same thing right now for like, internationally when we look at what's happening to donald trump it doesn't seem fair because, I mean, whether or not he was right to make the claims he, he made about, you know, the stolen election or whatever, I mean, that that is besides the point. Uh, what matters right now is that it seems that conservatives are very much under attack by the establishment, and that doesn't seem like it's going to stop anytime soon. Yeah, I agree. And again, I think that we're so divided in this country because Half of the country believes that Trump could do no wrong, even if he did something wrong. And the other half believes that he does wrong when he wakes up and takes his first breath. So we're in a weird spot, but I appreciate your perspective on all of this. I'll keep following you on Twitter. I love the viral videos you post and your insight. Thanks so much for being with me, Ian. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Moving on to the feel-good video of the week. What happens when you block a road on tribal land in Nevada? Better question. What happens when you F around? You find out. Roll it. And that is how you do it. Don't give these deranged granola nerds an inch. 
You know, they claim to be blocking a major roadway to protest the Burning Man Festival and climate change in general, but we all know what they really what it really was, a plea for attention and a symptom of the disease known as liberalism. That video, though, Christmas in August. In Nevada, it's Big Green Cult Zero Insanity One. But the fight ain't over, and the Big Green Cult is coming for your basic household fixtures yet again, this time your ceiling fans. Biden's Department of Energy is looking at changing the energy conservation standards for ceiling fans to combat climate change. How bold, how brave. These tree huggers tout that with these new requirements, Americans could save almost 17 whole dollars over the lifespan of the fan for standard ceiling fan. Wow, what a savings. But kind of important to note, the conversion cost to meet the new standard is estimated at $107.2 million. The cost could cause as many as 30% of small ceiling fan manufacturers to go out of business. But that's just Bidenomics, baby. Here to discuss is author and energy expert Alex Epstein. All right, Alex, they are coming for the ceiling fans now. And, you know, they are touting the 17 whole dollars that people could save over the lifetime of the ceiling fan if they just enact these new energy standards. Because apparently, I didn't know this, but ceiling fans are, I guess, a major contributor to climate change and the apocalypse that is currently coming our way. Uh, Can you please break this down for me? Ceiling fans, public enemy number one or not so much? It's obviously absurd. I think there's an interesting question of how did we get to this point? Uh, like why are why are why are our lives being so micromanaged to the point where we're being dictated? Here's exactly what ceiling fan you need to use because you would think common sense. Well, I can judge the ceiling fan that's most cost effective for me, including the one that has the best amount of energy use. It's not true that we want to use as little energy as possible. We want to use as much energy as is beneficial. So often there's a trade-off between how little something energy, like how, quote, energy efficient something is and how economically efficient it is. Because sometimes you have things that are very expensive, but more energy efficient. So this should obviously be up to us to decide. And this is actually true of all so-called energy efficiency. There's no reason whatsoever in any area of life for the government to dictate energy efficiency. Energy efficiency done properly is just part of economic efficiency, and we're incentivized to be economically efficient because that just means choosing things that are more cost-effective. So we've gotten to a point where the government has this fascist totalitarian control over every aspect of our lives in the name of energy efficiency or some kind of efficiency, And it makes it worse. Just look at toilets. Just look at uh, washing machines. Like so many things are getting worse, even though they should be getting way better because we have these government dictated efficiency standards. And really, it's not about efficiency. It's about deficiency. They don't believe it's good to use energy. So they want to reduce it in all sorts of different ways. And then they make up these phony things like, oh, you're going to save $17. If I'm going to save $17, why don't you prove it to me? And I get to decide for myself. Yeah, 17 whole dollars. Wow, that's uh, some Bidenomics for you. But, you know, I also want to talk about the debate last week, and and, uh, I want to talk about Vivek in a moment. But first, I thought it was interesting because one of the questions was set up about climate change, and it was led into by that's what young people reportedly care most about. Young voters care most about climate change. That's worrying to me because I know that there's so much misinformation and manipulation, as you well know, out there shaping this narrative. But I am concerned because young people are naming this as their top issue. So how do we explain to young people the realities of the situation, whether they love the planet and they want to save it or not, to get them to understand that these 
tyrannical mandates and restrictions and regulations are not what they appear in, I guess, their rose-colored glasses that they see the world in? I think this is a really important question. Actually, I have a Substack, alexepstein.substack.com, which if people check out, it addresses this exactly. So I'll just give you a summary, uh, which is when people are concerned about climate change, it's really being concerned about climate catastrophe. You need to do two things. And unfortunately, I don't think any of the candidates did this. I think some of the other answers were good, but I don't think any of them directly engaged this. So one is you need to refute the idea of climate catastrophism. Often what you see is people say, oh, there's no climate change, or they'll say, I'm not going to engage the issue at all. And neither of those, or they'll say, oh, it's a huge problem, right? So it's evasion or non in or like um, or you know, not addressing it. It's just, it's not the right way to do it or, or conceding catastrophism. So you can explain, hey, there's a difference between climate impact or climate change on the one hand, which just means we have some impact on climate with climate catastrophism, which means that we face a, a catastrophe that needs to be averted by rapidly reducing our CO2 emissions. And what you can show pretty easily is that we're actually safer than ever from climate because whatever climate changes have occurred, our ability to master climate, so to deal with climate danger, has far outpaced that. And that's very related to fossil fuels because fossil fuels power all the machines that allow us to irrigate and alleviate drought and build sturdy buildings and power storm warning systems, et cetera. So number one, refute the idea of climate catastrophism and actually show we're having an improvement in climate livability. And then number two, you could add a third, but number two is show actually good alternative energy policies based on energy freedom. So be pro-nuclear, be pro-geothermal, but talk about getting, getting those to reach their full potential by removing all the green obstacles. Point out, for example, you know, President Biden says he wants all this development of green energy, and yet he shut off one of the most promising mining properties in the United States in Minnesota for 20 plus years, having a moratorium on it. So I think you can show both climate catastrophism is a fiction and pro-freedom people are the ones who are actually going to get us those alternative energies in a way that they scale at low cost. So China and India actually use them. The third thing that you pointed out is also very important. And this came up with Vivek and he got in so much trouble for this, even though he's completely right, is pointing out that these climate change policies, what he called bad climate change policies, are far more destructive than any actual climate change. So I think that's an important point. I'm happy to discuss that. Yeah, we want. actually have that clip that you're referencing. So let's play it for those who haven't seen it. And then I want your take on it. Let's roll it. I can offer clear evidence that the number of climate disaster-related deaths is down by 98% over the last century. The number of people who died of hurricanes, tornadoes, heat waves, and other weather-related events in 1920, for every 100 that died then, two die today. And the reason why is more plentiful, abundant access to fossil fuels and technology powered by fossil fuels. Alex, it sounds like he's read your books. It sounds like well, he, he is well-versed well versed in, in all things Alex because you've been telling me this for years. Yeah, he's definitely read the book. He's, he's publicly talked about that, and I think he internalized it well. What preceded this, I found fascinating. It really shows how unscientific and dogmatic the climate catastrophe community is. So you have Andrea Mitchell repeating the same thing that was on PolitiFact and other things, which they say there are 2 million extreme weather deaths since 1970, and they are caused by climate change that has been made worse by fossil fuels. Notice how weaselly that is, how vague it is, how, how it's been, been, mm -hmm. been made worse. But let's note something, 2 million deaths in 50 years. 
That's 40,000 deaths a year. And that's getting at what Vivek and I are saying, which is that climate-related disaster deaths are down. And by the way, there were more in the 70s than there are today. So what the, the stat actually shows is climate-related disaster deaths are at record lows. We sometimes used to have 3 million deaths a year, not even adjusted for population, in the 20s and 30s. So as Vivek said, we're 150th as likely to die from a climate-related cause, yet these numbskulls can't even understand the stupid data that they are parroting. And then, of course, they're blaming it all on fossil fuels, so we would have zero deaths without fossil fuels. I mean, this is just so insane, but they're just totally evading this decline in climate-related disaster deaths. And I'm really glad that we have a presidential candidate who's talking about this because nobody was, uh, people were paying attention, but the mainstream media got to evade this because why would they interview me? Why would they interview Schellenberger? Why would they interview Bjorn Lomborg, Steve Kuhn, and anyone who actually knows what they're talking about? But when there's a prominent presidential candidate saying it, they can't evade him. And yet he's saying what we've been saying for years, and they have no answer. They have these idiotic talking points that on their own are absurd, but they've never thought about the issue to know enough that they're absurd. So he says we have a massive decline in climate-related deaths. She says you have 40,000 deaths a year from climate as if that's a refutation and as if they're all based on fossil fuels. What's interesting to me as well is some of these liberals who claim that climate change activism is so important to them, especially these pundits on mainstream media. You know, Florida is being hit with a hurricane really as we speak. And I can't imagine what any of these pundits or any of the people in Florida would feel like if they didn't have fossil fuels to protect them, to get out of the path of the storm, to power the hotels and wherever they need to be, the gas-powered vehicles they need to get the hell out of there. I can't imagine if they had to just rely on their granola power to get out of the path of a hurricane. I have a feeling their tune might change, and I think you're exactly right about that, which brings me to my next point, because I have to get your take on it, and that's Maui. So we got, you know, one disaster to the next. But I know that you've been tweeting about it. I know that you've been doing some analysis on it. And, you know, there's been some back and forth on what exactly caused those fires. Obviously, a lot of conspiracy theories out there. But when you see it and you heard that they were blaming climate change, what was your initial reaction? I mean, my initial reaction is people have no idea how to think about climate disasters. Again, they're totally ignorant of the fact that deaths from these are down. Damages are not up, by the way. Damages are flat from these things adjusted for inflation. Um, so what's going on with Maui is the same thing. And, and I have I mentioned my substack, alexepstein.substack.com. We'll probably push. We have a Maui analysis coming out soon, which is, I think, more in-depth and accurate than anything that has been published, which isn't much, actually, because everything is totally inaccurate. So. What, what is the effect of global climate change on the local conditions in Maui that may or may not have made it more susceptible to wildfires? We really have no idea. Anyone who claims to know this with specificity is a charlatan. What we do know is the thing that makes by far the biggest difference with dangerous wildfires is wildfire management. And above all, how do you manage the fuel load, which is that is the amount of fuel that you have that's actually burnable. So Hawaii is a place that has had, a, particularly Maui, has had a lot of kind of new invasive grasses as they, they got out of sugarcane production, which was irrigated. They have all this dry grass. And there were many, many people sounding the alarm, hey, you need to do something about this. You actively need to manage it but it wasn't a priority. If you look at their website, it's not on their website, but they talk about like being green and all this kind of stuff and saving wetlands. They're not worried about saving humans from wildfires. So all these proposals to actually deal with the problem were set aside. 
At the same time, they've been spending a fortune on green energy, which that takes money away both from wildfire management and from maintaining power lines, which are a crucial ignition source. And then they also mismanage the water and all the good water proposals were thrown out because they're so focused on being green. So it's really green policies make you terrible at managing wildfires because green means don't impact things. But to manage wildfires, you need to impact a lot. So this is a total failure of green policies and they're advocating green policies as a solution, which just means more expensive energy, less ability to deal with wildfires and no learning from the experience. Yeah, I, you're exactly right about that. You know, we knew that they were going to blame climate change. That's the easiest thing for uneducated people to do is just spit out a talking point or spit, spit out something that seems like it encompasses all. You know, anytime you throw out climate change, people just go, oh, OK, that's it. And they move along and they don't actually dig into the real issues because that takes a little bit of work. But I'm so glad that you have always done that, giving us the truth. We always appreciate your take, Alex, and I hope everyone will check out your Substack and, of course, follow you on Twitter so they can combat the climate alarmists. Appreciate you as always. Thank you. And just when people say climate change is responsible, just imagine if they said witches are responsible because <laughs> it's just about as plausible that there's one evil in the world that is responsible for everything bad. And, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to share the truth on your shows over the years. Well, if there is a witch responsible, I think her name is Hillary Clinton, but that's a discussion for another day. Thanks so much, Alex. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Did you know that Gavin Newsom's California is funneling millions in taxpayer dollars into a nonprofit that pushes invent your own gender ideology on school children? Well, you're about to learn all about it because it's time for Final Thoughts. So last night I got a very disturbing email from our friends over at Open the Books, a watchdog organization dedicated to tracking how the government blows our tax dollars. The organization has uncovered a bombshell that makes those gender queer books in children's libraries look vanilla. Turns out Governor Newsom's administration is pumping millions of taxpayer dollars into a nonprofit called Gender Spectrum. This nonprofit goes beyond your average gender bending indoctrination and promotes something called neo genders. What the hell is a neo gender? Exactly, it's made up. Included on the list of so-called neo-genders are identifications such as fox gender and autism gender. The nonprofit's underlying mission is to free students from binary gender and encourage young people to invent their own identities and even their own genders. Gender Spectrum also promotes secret gender transitions for students in California and across the country and outlines a gender support plan which excludes parents at the child's request. Some of this starts as early as kindergarten, by the way. But it turns out this partnership between the California Department of Public Health and Gender Spectrum isn't just a one-off thing, a part of a nine-year grant to conduct rigorous evaluation of the nonprofit's professional development programs. This grant program entitles Gender Spectrum to $2,340,000 taxpayer dollars. Now, this all started when Newsom was lieutenant governor and was supposed to end in 2022. But shocker, Newsom's administration more than doubled annual funding and gave gender spectrum an extension through June 2026. And the plan is to expand this program to more schools in more states. Now, Open the Books dove deep into gender spectrum and uncovered some disturbing presentations like this one from the Gender Spectrum Family Conference in October 2022, wherein their director of training, Carla Pena, explained part of the training program that centers around a student's gender support team. Quote, 
We also give this training to school educators and administrators who are working with trans and gender expansive kids. And it's not always the case that caregivers are supportive of their child's gender, their gender journey in that case. If parents are not supportive or if the child is not out, that's not necessarily someone who will be a part of the gender support team. But that's not all. Open the Books also discovered that Gender Spectrum consulted on the national sex education standards cited by none other than our friends over at the CDC for use in schools nationwide. Here are some of those standards published in 2021. Wow. Now, Open the Books, as well as our team here at OutKick, reached out to Gender Spectrum, the California Department of Public Health, and Governor Gavin Newsom's office for comment, but those requests have thus far been ignored. Y'all, this is wild. This is repugnant. This is already taking root inside our education system, and it's not going anywhere if we don't act now. Because this isn't just a California problem. This kind of education is a cancer, a tumor, and it will spread. You know, I warned y'all at the top of the show, and I'll remind you again. If you are able, get your kids out of these kind of schools and into a school, a district, or an educational situation that sets them up to be productive adults, not fox genders, minotaurs, and confused pawns of the left. Time is of the essence. Those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless and take care.